Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Safdar Ahmed is a Sydney-based artist, musician, educator, uh, and is here to talk about a new graphic novel uh, recently published called Still Alive, Notes from Australia's Immigration Detention System. Safta, welcome to Triple R. Congratulations on the book, which we should acknowledge is a collaborative book. Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, and that's right. Yeah, this graphic novel is actually the culmination of the last 10 years of my visiting the Villawood Detention Centre and starting a community art project with some friends called Refugee Art Project, where we would go into Villawood every week, basically, and draw and offer sort of, you know, drawing and art to whoever was in there. And at the time, uh, back in 2011, when it all started, most of the people we met were were asylum seekers from countries like um, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, Sri Lanka and Myanmar. And um, soon after a few weeks, we had a really nice drawing circle. And I guess the comic came out from those experiences and the friendships that I made with people uh, back then and who I'm still friends with. So we still meet, actually, and, and get together and eat and draw in Western Sydney. Um, and hopefully, yes, it's very collaborative in that sense. I'm sort of trying to convey some of their narratives and messages through the book. Now, one of the things, there's a, an early section in the book where you talk about visiting Villa Wood and other people visiting as well. Essentially, some other visitors almost asking uh, the people who are kind of inside Villa Wood to talk about their trauma uh, mm. and, which, and seeming almost surprised when people didn't want to share their stories. And it struck me that the value that art has as a tool in that regard, that people can open up if they want to. And we see people's self-expression kind of evolving out onto the page uh, as you kind of tell the stories and share their stories. But the fact that it puts the onus very much on the individual to share what they want to share. And it's both Mm. art as therapy, art as confession and art as political tools. Yeah, that's right. Um, Certainly in our community organisation, Um, people were free to sort of express things on their own terms, which didn't always mean that they would express political themes. Sometimes it was art as a type of escape or fantasy or what have you, or an expression of culture. Sometimes people would do religious drawings and that sort of thing. And so that was really interesting because it conveys the density and depth of people's experiences and of their humanity, that they aren't just refugees who've been through this traumatic experience. You know, that doesn't define their whole lives. And I guess the uh, bit you mentioned, the bit about visitors, um, that's an unfortunate dimension of the experience of refugees who come to Australia. The fact that they are telescoped through one lens and seen either pejoratively as cue jumpers or just as people who've survived this experience and their whole life is sort of reduced to the category of refugee. So my book tries to push against that. And sadly, it is true that sometimes normal Aussies, because they have no contact with any asylum seekers or refugees, I think are used to sort of objectifying them in that way. And some people do ask very invasive questions from the get-go as though refugees are somehow obliged to confess their stories as a means of validation. So hopefully that very reductive lens 
is shattered by the graphic novel. I hope it's more diverse and, and conveys a more complex experience. Take us back to 2011 and when you first visited Villa Wood. Uh, the fact that anybody visiting uh, undergoes kind of testing for drug traces, for example, you're photographed, you're kind of... It's like visiting somebody in prison, but perhaps mm. even harsher in some ways is mm. the impression that, that I've been given. But... Were you worried that your pencils and paper would be confiscated, for example, on those early visits? Yeah, it was very restrictive. In fact, it's even more restrictive now, nowadays. Um, back in the day, we were very limited in what I and my friends could bring into the, the detention centre. So, for instance, you couldn't bring glass, um, nothing sharp. There was one guy, an Afghan guy, who wanted to knit things and his knitting needles were taken away from him. Um, so really all we could do was bring sketchbooks and pencils and erasers. Uh, one or two wanted to do oil paintings, but that was really tough because turpentine is flammable. Couldn't bring that in. Couldn't bring uh, a medium in a glass jar. It had to be in a plastic container, that kind of thing. So it was very restrictive. It actually is harsher than prison, I think. There were a number of detainees who weren't asylum seekers, but they had been in... Long Bay Jail or Silverwater Jail, they had done some misdemeanour and had done their prison term and were then taken to Villawood. And those guys would often say, this is much worse. At least we had activities in jail. At least we had rights. At least we knew how long we were going to be there as well. So um, <clears throat> absolutely, indefinite detention, I think, is a special kind of punishment. And everyone in there, everyone who's come to Australia seeking asylum... Um, every refugee who ends up in the system feels like they're being punished. They don't see it as processing. And the very common sentiment is, why am I being punished? I'm not a criminal and I haven't done anything wrong. So, um, yeah, the book also tries to give a little bit of history about that as well, how these very punitive policies came about um, from the labour period in the 1990s onwards. Including, of course, the rise of Pauline Hanson and her rhetoric. Yes, and the very destructive impact that that had, I think, on Australian politics because it really injected race back into the sort of, you know, the mainstream of Australian politics. I think it's always been there, but Hansenism uh, was something that the Howard government clearly benefited from. In terms of compiling and creating this book, what were your main intentions? Was it an artistic work primarily or was it a work of presenting individuals and their stories and the, the policies that have shaped their lives in a way that was accessible, readable and informative? Yeah, hopefully both. Um, <clears throat> I definitely wanted to stand up as a work of art and a work of graphic reporting and narrative and I love the comics form. So um, for me, I hope it stands up as an aesthetic work but definitely the messages um, I think are very important. I hope it educates people. Um, I hope it challenges them. I think comics and graphic novels and cartooning in general has a long history of subversion and kicking back against power, you know. And so I hope it belongs to that tradition. That's that's the sort of thing that I love to read. And, um, yeah, it's it's... Someone asked me the other day, is the book about empathy? Is it about generating empathy? But I don't think empathy is enough. I think it's... Empathy is too close to sympathy and pity and other types of uh, looking down sort of on people and then trying to lift them up. I hope the book doesn't do that. I hope it's about 
meeting people on an equal plane. In terms of the the details, uh, some of the stories that are told, um, did you ever feel at any point you needed to censor the work that, uh, that's being presented? You've changed names of story mm, of people, sure. obviously, in order to protect their identities. But when we're talking about kind of uh, teenagers, talking about the realities of trying to get into Europe, for example. Uh, mm putting plastic bags over their head so that their carbon dioxide is not picked up by sensors, for example. Those kind of small details are deeply powerful and quite shocking in some ways. Did, yeah. you, did you feel kind of... Were you ever kind of tempted or to go, this is too hard, some of this information is is too much? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, yeah, what you're referring to is Haider, the main character in the book. Before he came to Australia, he was a... Child, as a child, he left Iran as an Afghan refugee when he was 15 and went to Europe. He actually went to the UK and was then deported from there to Afghanistan where he had no family and ended up making his way to Australia. So putting in that European journey felt important to me because that's also a very universal route that refugees take. Um, but regarding your question, I think um, I wouldn't call it self-censorship in any way. It was about the editorial process and thinking and the selection of what goes in and what goes what doesn't. And yes, there's a lot of horror to this policy and people's experiences. And so I, for me, the main concern was how do I respectfully convey things which are generally, genuinely horrifying, you know, and how much do you show and tell of those experiences? You want the reader to be impacted. You don't want to spare the reader's feelings, but at the same time to do it in a respectful way. That was the main issue that I think I would, would juggle with. And that comes back to what we were saying earlier about this being a collaboration, kind of mm. the, the, the work is yours, the, the writing, the drawing, the panels, the, the, the visual design of the book is mm. yours, but you are sharing stories that have been entrusted to you by other people. Yeah. So I presume there was a bit of back and forth between some of the, the people who yeah, were absolutely. entrusting you to, about what they, you could or could not show. Yeah, that's exactly right, especially the main character, Hyder, whose who's narrative sort of arcs through the book. Um, he, I check, would check back with him all the time. It, whenever I'd done some new pages that related to him, um, he would clear them, which was good. Um, and so it helped a lot that I was good friends with him and many of the other people in the book because um, there was more of a sense of trust and familiarity, you know, that I could count on them to actually be honest and say if they didn't like something or if they didn't want this episode to end up in the book or if they had second thoughts about something. So that was very important, that type of consultation and consent being an ongoing process. Um, yeah, so, yes, it's about, I don't know, it's about trying to convey sometimes very disturbing things but in a way which is respectful of their narratives given that they are collaborators as well. It's not just me taking the story and running off with it, you know? Talk to us about the, the decisions around the visual depictions in the book as well. Uh, uh, it's, you've, uh, the work is published in black and white, uh, and black and white certainly sometimes has an, an intensity that colour doesn't somehow. There's something about the, the starkness of black and white on the page that has inter, real kind of intimacy and power. And there's also that series of single panels that effectively break up each chapter, uh, mm. kind of just, again, kind of confronting images, powerful images and so forth. Talk mm. to us about that, the visual construction of the graphic novel, because in some ways uh, I think that creating a graphic novel, it's almost like for people who... It's like 
a different language. If people are familiar with a traditional novel, for example, sure. reading a graphic novel can sometimes confuse them, or if they're only familiar with poetry, for example. So talk yeah. to us about the form itself and the challenges that you went through trying to work out how to present the information in the book. Yeah, sure. I love the subjective nature of graphic novels. I mean, if, if you're doing the whole thing, writing it, drawing it, um, it feels like making a movie in which you basically, you know, one person seems to do everything, choose the actors, set the sets, organise the lighting, the dialogue, the delivery, absolutely every aspect. And that's what I love about it. It's so intensely personal. The visual style is strongly inspired by underground com- the underground comics tradition, people like Art Spiegelman who came out of the 60s um, underground comics movement. I'm also really inspired by the history of illustration that sort of witnesses and, and um, you know, illustration as a form of um, historical witnessing, whether it's Goya's Disasters of War, Gustave Doré's um, illustrations of London in the 19th century. So that, that, off, that all of that stuff inspires me. The black and white... Um, Pictures that go between the chapters are particularly inspired by German woodcuts that came out of the interwar period, the Weimar Republic, the um, people like um, uh, Franz Masseril and Lynn Ward and, and people who left Europe, went to the States and did these beautiful black and white comics, these silent comics which were inspired by black and white movies which had really strong anti-authoritarian, anti-fascist themes. Um, and people like George Gross, of course, you know, who illustrated the, the Weimar Republic and the, the corruption of that time. So, yeah, all of that really subversive, strongly kind of political and very individualistic um, cartooning, art and illustration and comics, I think, is, is what inspires me and, and, a, and a lot of that is sort of subtly referenced in the book. Well, as I was kind of reading uh, some of the sections last night, uh, for example, there's... Uh, a panel that I just looked at and kind of went, hmm, Bernie Wrightson influence, for oh, example. I love it, so, yeah. 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 The horror aesthetic is is there as well. There's a little bit of monster theory in there because I talk a little bit about art and what it's done for me. And certainly horror um, for me has been a wonderful way of understanding the world. I see horror as a very good vehicle for social criticism. Bernie Wrightson's Monsters, Swamp Thing and all of that, his Frankenstein book, um, you know, really inspired me. Frankenstein's one of my favourite books. There's even a page about Frankenstein in the graphic novel. And also you talk about horror, but you also talk about the way that art can be used to kind of to, to deal with trauma as well. Yep. The fact that trauma and, and you, it's explained beautifully through the combination of text and image, the way that mm. trauma disrupts and kind of moves from the, the place where it happened, infecting everybody else's, infecting kind of people's lives on a day-to-day basis. And art then is a way to process trauma, mm. to pack it up and to, to deal with it in its own terms. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not like art can fix, fix everything, you know. It's not um, – I don't even see it in the context of therapy, which is more of a medical model, you know, when we think about art therapy. I see art as um, – but it's definitely a way of reflecting on difficult experiences which can distance – the person from those experiences in a way which is safe for them. And that separation from the event of trauma, I think, is very important. So definitely I think art can have a role for people who, who, who want to engage in that process, you know, with dealing with very difficult and traumatic experiences. And through Refugee Art Project, I sort of saw that firsthand because I saw people 
sometimes expressing very difficult things which they might actually struggle to talk about or put in a logical context or fold into a narrative context. But, you know, this visceral act of drawing can actually do something and spark something and help them sort of come to terms with it in some way without, of course, being Pollyanna about it or seeing it as therapy or healing or anything like that. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Safdar Ahmed about his graphic novel, Still Alive, Notes from Australia's Immigration Detention System, which is published by 12 Panels Press. And I'll give the, the website details where you can get hold of a copy and the, uh, the, the lists of local bookshops that are currently stocking it. But Safdar, we've talked quite a bit about the book itself. Talk to us just a little bit about the process of actually getting it into print, given, as you said, this began as a project creatively back in 2011. Uh, mm. It was published in April this year. Mm. Um, how did you go from A to B? How did the book itself come about? Yeah, well, the book wasn't the original aim, of course. So I started off just doing the community work and making friends in Villawood and being really inspired by the sort of, you know, creative um, juices that, that everyone was sharing. And then after about four years in 2014, I think, late 2014, GetUp announced a crowdsourced initiative called The Shipping News, which was a crowdfunding venture which would fund alternative journalism on the refugee issue. And at that point I thought, oh, you know, I should do something about Villawood, some sort of comic. And so that was the first iteration of what became this book. That was published in 2015 um, and it won a Walkley Award in the artwork category um, of that year. And it was then that 12 Panels Press approached me and said, you know, we like the webcomic, why not make it into a graphic novel? And that was when I thought, okay, but it's going to be a a much bigger work and I'm going to have to say a lot more and really try and tell the whole story. And so six years later... Here we are, and it's finally come out. Graphic novels take a hell of a long time. I optimistically, I think I first said it would take me a year and a half, which was gross, you know, um, underestimation. So anyway, it's, um, yeah, it's been a long journey. Uh, it wasn't the original goal to make this book, but I'm glad it it's out now, and it certainly feels like the culmination of 10 years of experience for me. A long journey for you, informed by the long journeys of the many people you've met in Villawood over the years. Yeah, certainly. The book is called Still Alive, Notes from Australia's Immigration Detention System. It's a graphic novel by Safdar Ahmed, published by 12 Panels Press, uh, retailing for $30 and available from good independent bookshops, Brunswick Bound, The Eltham Bookshop, The Paperback Bookshop, Readings and The Sun Bookshop locally. So... Go to them and uh, and buy a copy today because you may need something to read <laughs> in the coming days. Um, uh, or you can jump online, 12panelspress.com, for more information about the book as well. Safdar Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R and congratulations on Still Alive. Oh, thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Triple R. Nat Randall is a Sydney-based performer who is here to talk to us about a work that's being presented as part of Rising. It's called Set Piece. Nat, welcome to Triple R. Hello, Richard. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you in here. Now, let's just talk about the elephant in the room at the moment. Your show is on from next week, from Wednesday until Sunday. Let's just assume it's going to go ahead right now, shall we? That's what we're doing. We're steaming ahead. Um, We're acting like... You know, you know, compliant, uh, but also um, 
you know, maybe naively optimistic, but we're moving ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm bearing in mind what Perth Festival did earlier in the year, for example, which was just go, right, we need to kind of go into lockdown. Let's reschedule kind of the festival for push everything back by two weeks. Logistics, huge achievement, but it can be done. We'll find out what happens. That's it. That's it. But... Tell us about Set Piece, which is a new work that you've been kind of developing for uh, well, a couple of years. Uh, yeah, a couple of years. So, you know, after um, The Second Woman, we um, Anna and I, Anna Brecken, we're in a collaborative uh, dynamic. So we, um, we, we started writing and conceiving of, of Set Piece, which uh, exists around, I guess, a... Um, a sort of uh, a lesbian dynamic, a sort of intergenerational lesbian um, four-piece uh, set. And, um, yeah, we were very interested in exploring and continuing our process of, I guess, integrating uh, theatre and film into the theatre form and working out how film and theatre can... the forms of each other can influence Um uh, how we experience, I guess, a live moment. And so for set piece, uh, we're really interested in intimacy and proximity. Um, of course, in theatre, when you, you know, you watch someone there, physically there in, in, in film, they're not there, but you can get closer to what someone in real life can get to a live body without losing focus in the eye. So what we're dealing with is sort of, um, yeah, very I- extreme kind of close-up uh, moments uh, in terms of a kind of a-, a slice in the night of a kind of after-party or the post-after-party, which is four women in a, in an apartment that are sort of boozing on and it's not technically kind of plot driven but it's a sort of experiential sort of debaucherous uh night uh where you you don't kind of arrive anywhere but you get the kind of feeling that basically anything is possible now one of the things that intrigues me about the work is that notion of blurring boundaries between art forms uh and i'm sure there will be some theater purists saying but why do you have to bring film and television into it why can't theater just be its own thing and and be celebrated for what it is the flip side of that being that when cinematic technique is well integrated into a piece of theatre. It brings the the work to life in such a a unique way. Uh, And I've seen that in quite a few STC productions, for example, but I've also seen it in cinema, uh, in theatre from Germany and elsewhere. As you say, that extreme close-up that that isn't really possible in theatre on its own terms, but which then suddenly gives such an insight into a character because you can see the tear forming in an eye... Um, uh, in a close-up on screen that you can't see if you're seated halfway back uh, in the theatre from the stage, for example. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the close-up, I guess, is sort of one kind of formal technique. Transitions, you know, if we think about transitions in theatre, if we think about the cut in film, what we're sort of grappling with in this piece is how we can reconcile the two. We're dealing in real time in our piece, so it's 75 minutes probably between the hours of maybe 3:30 a.m. to you know 4 <laughs> 4 uh, 45 uh, a.m. um and essentially we we we're, we're trying to yes honor the 
the sort of filmic component. So how do, how do, how can we cut into a moment? How can we cut into a moment in theatre? And these sort of formal um, oppositions really um, is, you know, whether we're, whether we're achieving it or not, who knows, but that these the, the transitional moments are kind of key to how we can experience time, how audience experience the the mediated image. You know, this is done, you know, so many times before. We're obviously not, you know, kind of moving across new territory, but I guess in terms of the way in which we're trying to understand, particularly kind of lesbian, queer, domestic space, how we can kind of um, offer a kind of new meaning to the filmic image and to the, I guess, very basic, ordinary um, theatre um, moment. And in terms of a performative mode, the way in which we've kind of... I'm one of the performers and three other performers are in it, uh, Dina Panozzo and Annie Finstera and um, Carly Shepherd, who's a local, um, how we can be quite ordinary in our performative mode um, filmically, so quite low level, and how that kind of relates, I guess, to the cinematic moment. So we're dealing with kind of oppositional forms. Well, yeah, because on in theatre, for example, you tend to need to exaggerate gesture, exaggerate uh, movement, uh, even exaggerate uh, vocal quality in order to project to the back of the theatre. All of things which work against live film and live television, for example, where uh, any kind of exaggeration is grossly exaggerated by the proximity of the camera. So you're not making things easy for no. yourself, trying to work in <laughs> two forms at once that's it and and with all those technical components we're trying to make it look very cash you know we're trying to make it look loose and messy like you know you might find yourself at a, a 3 like a party at 3am yeah, yeah and as i look at you now richard and you've just got your your glasses just just down the 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 front of your nose like that as a decision that kind of minute decision in relation to how you might look at someone, how you might read the paper, how you might read your not you know, those are the these are the sorts of qualities, like just the the way that I'm kind of rubbing my fingers together, that is what we're trying to capture in this. We're not in terms of this piece, the the spoken word is not as important. And you know, f- for theatre people like, yep, you're speaking, yep, you're speaking, yep, 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 yep. Obviously, people don't read theatre like that, you know, being pretty crass. But what we're trying to explore here is the unspoken and the gestural in its in its kind of um, minute form. Now, for people who are familiar with your work, the the earlier work that you referenced, The Second Woman, was an experiential piece that went for 24 hours in which I know audiences who would go for an hour and then go, right, I'm coming back at 3 o'clock in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock the next day to, to get more of this. It was uh, replaying the same scene again and again and again with different members of the public effectively kind of res- reading lines uh, to be responded to. This work, uh, set piece, is much more set in its time. It's 75 minutes rather than that full 24 God, hours. <laughs> was that partially just because the process of performing The Second Woman, which to great acclaim, mind you, was so physically and emotionally gruelling? Or was it more that you thought, right, we've done that, time for a new challenge, time for the controlled, the the tighter, the the more focused? I I think um, 
yeah, uh, it probably wasn't a sort of reaction to the gruelling process of the 24-hour piece, but um, I guess understanding uh, the theatre, the, the, the sort of conventional theatre form and how we can work within that and, and also, I guess, a kind of standard filmic form, right, we're dealing with a kind of time-based situation which is roughly the sort of introduction of Netflix and streaming services has sort of really corrupted what a kind of film form is but essentially uh, we're very interested in, um, yeah, creating uh, a piece of work that 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 sort of honoured a kind of theatre form and how we could kind of work within that. Uh, and, you know, we didn't have any um, sort of gripes <laughs> about the, the second woman, um, obviously... You know, I think I think it's actually uh, there's much more risk. I think with a 75 minute show, really, you can get away with a lot in 24 hours. You know, 75 minutes, you've got to be bloody on. And I really do, I do think that du- duration is obviously something that we think about. But um, for this piece, uh, it made sense. With theatre, sometimes we're not dealing in real time. You know, we've got scene shifts and blah, blah, blah. We're, we're, we're trying to honour 75 minutes as real time in theatre and that's actually quite <laughs> it's quite difficult because you do want to do a scene change, you do want to do a lighting shift, you do want to do a cut. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're, yeah, we've honoured that and, um, yeah, we've, we've stuck to it but it, yeah, doesn't quite have a relation to the second woman. This work is also uh, referencing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, and that's where the, the intergenerational kind of lesbian aspect comes from is to, a, to a degree. Intergenerational relationships seem much more taboo today than they may have uh, 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. Uh, any qualms going into the show exploring kind of the age difference between a couple, for example? Uh, not not qualms in terms of, I guess, illegal, uh, <laughs> illegal coupledom. Um, I guess Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf doesn't deal with uh, that sort of um, edge of, of the, the, I guess, the spectrum that we're dealing with. But I guess we, we were looking at theatrical texts that explored the couple form and, and starting to think about like contemporary heterosexual coupledom and homosexual intergenerationality and, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf is such a famous text, right? And, you know, it's culturally esteemed text that we were like, okay, so this is a this is a dynamic that explores heterosexual in a intergenerational coupledom and it seemed to provide a point um, of uh, contrast to the ideas that we wanted to explore around what kinds of relations are available to, I guess, queers, lesos, gays, you know, everything in between. And, you know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was really a starting point for us. And, you know, as we all know, um, if we've seen the film or <laughs> the plays, it's quite a toxic dynamic and that the failure of these couples are in relation to the inability to reproduce and what we wanted to do was I guess yeah explore that form but also work out a way not to be kind of naive naively utopian but 
what might it look like to explore intergenerational coupledom or polyamorous dynamics that aren't kind of bound by the inability to reproduce and what might those relations look like and I guess this is a sort of yeah this is a kind of musing on what how how people separated generationally might relate and that's that's it in its kind of simplicity. It's because it's a for me. It's a I guess personally, it's a really intriguing idea to explore. Because historically, in the queer community, intergenerational relationships were enormously common. Kind of uh, yeah. uh, for for gay men in the nineteen twenties, for example, it would be unusual not to have an age difference in the relationship. Whereas today, we've kind of we're at, at the opposite end, where it is somehow seen as perhaps slightly odd that a I don't know a twenty five year old might be going out with a forty five year old or something like that. So in some ways, it's an act of uh, reclamation. In in a way, although I, I really feel like, and I obviously can't speak for a kind of cis or trans male gay community, but, you know, this idea that women that age that is not desirable in a kind of contemporary ideological, like the, 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 ideolo- the ideology around women ageing in life um, is... Uh, is not positive, right? In the Leso community, it's the most desirable thing. And what we are trying to do is essentially, you know, what all of the 1950s kind of pulp lesbian fiction, all of the, you know, Carol, like we've, we've got all of these different films that we're sort of citing that basically that you're not just like tossed out, you're actually the most kind of valuable fucking, sorry to swear, human, <laughs> you know, in 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 a kind of culture. And what we want to explore is this idea of lesbian domestic ordinary space, but lesbian fantasy as well. And for, for me and for all of my queer friends, like the older woman is the most desirable woman and that's it. <laughs> Set Piece is running from Wednesday the 2nd until Sunday the 6th of June as part of Rising at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. You can jump online for more info, rising.melbourne, where you can also book. And Rising, the festival, is on now, uh, officially opening last night with the lunar eclipse and running, fingers crossed, through until the 6th of June. I've been chatting with Nat Randall about Set Piece, as I said, on until uh, from the 2nd until the 6th of June at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. Nat, thanks so much for coming in. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'm joined on the line by playwright Michael Paul Toomey, whose new play, Little Brother, Big Sister he is currently playing at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Carlton. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Now, just before we move on, uh, as always, a very quick acknowledgement from me when we talk about La Mama shows. I have a slight conflict of interest in that I'm the chair of the Volunteer Committee of Management, so I'm not benefiting financially from promoting and discussing La Mama shows. With that out of the way, Michael, uh, this play is being presented... Uh, I guess to tie in with the fact that it's uh, Schizophrenia Awareness Week and the play, I understand, is inspired by your own lived experience. Yes, it's an autobiographical play about uh, schizophrenia. I 
was diagnosed around 2001. I've lived with the illness for about 20 years. And I understand that one of the things the play explores and indeed one of the things that was a challenge for you was accepting that diagnosis. Yes, it took me over 15 years to accept that I did have the diagnosis of schizophrenia. It's a very isolating experience and it's very hard to accept that you've got something not wrong in your mind but unbalanced. How then did you decide to explore that that personal struggle of acceptance uh, dramatically. Tell us how you got to the point of sitting down and writing the script. Uh, I I started the script in 2014. I sort of had... I had a social worker at the time who was a painter, but she gave up the vocation of being a painter and studied psychology and social work because her cousin had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So from that, I adapted the play to have a brother and sister character. I'm a writer, but my sister Fiona is a filmmaker. So in the play, the sister's a painter and both the um, male and female, brother and sister, both have artistic ambitions which are shown throughout the play. The play has, I think, seven or eight paintings in it which are used by the characters to discuss their own creative urges, but also the journeys that they're on as a carer. And the word for a patient these days is called a consumer. So it's a two-handed play that started off more as a commentary on schizophrenia and then working with my dramaturg, Peter Masterson, it became a two-handed play that was more character-driven than what it was in the original draft. And is the art... Uh, that's presented in the play, is that a way to help advance the story narratively as well and perhaps show us something more of the internal lives of the characters as well? Yes, it's essential to the play. Um, There's one picture which demonstrates my father was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was younger and one of the paintings is called Dear Dad, We Love You and it's a painting of my father. There's three faces on it. One is his social face, and then one uh, face represents schizophrenia, and the other face uh, symbolises depression and anger. So the paintings are essential to the furthering of an understanding of the plot by the audience. Now, am I right... Uh, Michael, in thinking that access and uh, to the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, uh, was helped play a role in uh, you writing and developing this play. Yes, that's right, Richard. I have a NDIS arts mentor ranged through Arts Access Victoria, which is the disability body for arts in our state. Her name's Tanya Louise Smith, and she is a performance artist who also and multimedia artist who also has a background in arts administration. So I meet with Tanya once or twice a week, and she's a great great sounding board for the process of art. She teaches me how to live an artist's life. But the thing that I wanted to know when I I first started our, our working relationship two and a half years ago was I wanted to learn about the business side of art, which is something I've done, and with this run at... Uh, season run at La Mama, I really understand how intrinsically connected the artistic and business side of producing a play or a piece of artwork is essential to each other. 
I, yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's certainly their skills that a lot of artists perhaps don't have, which is why kind of many artists might work with an independent producer, for example, to help them get a show up. Mm-hmm. But understanding the, the business basics of being an artist is so critical to succeeding as an artist in the world today, uh, whether that includes uh, everything from, I don't know, uh, insurance and uh, and the talking through the process of producing a work through to, I don't know, uh, all the tax that you have to be across, for example, as well. Most certainly, Richard. Now, Michael, in terms of kind of creating and writing the play, I understand that you've chosen to explore a few different kind of modes of, of storytelling in order to convey something of the experience of schizophrenia and uh, uh, to the audience. Yeah, it, it's just that I said before, the paintings are essential to the development of the narrative. And the narrative's quite long, but what is good about the play is that you're hearing a story and a piece of theatre, but it's also like going to an art gallery. And as the female character was a painter, we had a painter called Elise McCleary, who's quite well known. She did two paintings from the sister's perspective. One's an early portrait which has two sets of eyes on it, and the last is a portrait of the brother and sister and um, I won't give too much away, but I, I can't really say anything more than that, sure. even though we've only got one show, hopefully, tonight. Yeah. Uh, and I just got a text from La Mama Theatre to say that, yes, the plan is that tonight's show uh, will go ahead, so uh, that's excellent oh, news. Thank you for that, Richard. That's great news, because that's the first time I've heard that. Uh, well, this is the, the, the one of the good things about being the chair of the uh, of the theatre. I can text somebody yeah. and, uh, and get a response. Now, uh, one of the th- other things I wanted to ask, Michael, in terms of the the narrative, the story that the the play is presenting, uh, I understand that you're using kind of uh, some experiences such as trying to show the um, the everything from naturalism uh, dramatically through to uh, the experiences of showing somebody who uh, might be interacting with the police, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So talk to us about those elements of the play as well, and kind of why you've incorporated them. Well, I sort of sat down when I was going through a recent draft and I thought, hmm, I'll make the play like a psychiatrist appointment where everything's on the table. So by doing that, yeah, I sort of have a naturalistic style in the sense of I like to tell a story. But, you know, like I've been capsicum sprayed by a police officer at one stage and forcibly injected. I included those because I wanted sort of like... When my dad was younger, he was told not to have children because he had schizophrenia, which obviously didn't, it did happen. But um, I wanted to look at psychiatry in the sense of things they did 40 years ago. Today, they wouldn't do. But in 20 years, they won't do things that they do today. And I think with the Mental Health Royal Commission, I think that approach to, as a critique, to the medical treatment of schizophrenia in particular is very important and it's a pertinent thing to be discussing. It certainly strikes me too that it's pertinent to include uh, not only uh, to be truthful to your own experience but also to convey to audiences kind of uh, not just what it looks like but what it feels like to, to live with schizophrenia as well. Yes, uh, you know, like, I think in the play, the sister character, Karen, says, my brother, a soulful being of illusory disillusionment, which is a bit of a mouthful, 
the big thing with schizophrenia is that when you're unwell, you disconnect from your family and friends and the world that you create with your voices creates fantasy and delusion. So it explores a point of view of psychosis from the brother's perspective, but it also looks at the consumer-carer relationship from the sister. And the play runs a bit long. It's like 110 minutes. But from speaking to the audience the last two nights, it's not a piece of theatre that you sit there looking at your watch going, oh, God, when's this going to end? It's, it's informative, but it's also, you know, emotionally, it explores and all the emotions around living with a family member with schizophrenia. Now, uh, the production is directed by Cathy Hunt, uh, and the cast includes uh, Adam Cass, uh, a fine performer, and also Jane Barry as well. Um, for you as the writer, were you sitting in the rehearsal rooms offering advice to the director and cast uh, throughout the 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 rehearsal of the play or were you just like I'll hand it over to them and entrust it to them now? Well I entrusted it to them and I, I'm told by Cassie our director I'm a very n- nice and quiet writer in the in rehearsal but I, I went to rehearsal at the beginnings of, of the process because the actors and the director wanted to ask me direct questions in, in respect to the experience of schizophrenia to help the actors with their motivation and then I stepped away from rehearsal. It was actually mentioned in the Age article that was on us a couple of days ago. Uh, Adam was doing an acting exercise and Cathy asked him to be me and he said, I find that pretty hard to do because, you know, you're in the room as the same person you're trying to impersonate. So I just said to Cathy, oh, look, I won't go to rehearsal for a few weeks to give Adam space. But um, in the great article that was in the Age, it was like, you know, Adam didn't want me there, which he said, no, 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 I did want you there. I like you being there. But I just decided to step away from it and, you know, let the three of them, you know, explore the text. But I did come back to rehearsal in the last couple of weeks and the show has moved on, you know, 80% what rehearsals were. It's really developed into a very strong piece of theatrical performance, which I have to, you know give Cathy credit and also Adam and Jane. Little Brother, Big Sister is on at uh, La Mama's Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. Uh, the final performance, unfortunately, because of lockdown kicking off at midnight, will be tonight uh, at 7.30pm. Yeah. yeah. So for more information and to book, you can go to lamama.com.au uh, and that's to book to see Michael Paul Toomey's Little Brother, Big Sister tonight at 7.30. So lamama.com.au and the Lamama Courthouse at 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. Michael, thank you so much for joining me and uh, I'm sorry that the, uh, the season is being cut short because of lockdown, but hopefully uh, there's an opportunity to remount it further down the track. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 